Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So at my house, we've kind of entered this kind of fun moment with my older boys where we're able to watch action movies that I kind of want to see with them, family-ish age action movies without the worry of, is this going to cause nightmares every time that we do it? So it's kind of a fun moment. We enjoy watching some shows together. My boys really dig uh, Star Wars right now and pretty much any Marvel movie that I'll, that I'll kind of deem appropriate for them to watch. Judah's a little ahead of that than, than Abel. And as I've thought about the movies that we're watching and these uh, kind of family-ish aged action movies, they've, they've changed a lot uh, from when I was young to what they get to watch now. When I was young, I watched movies like The Goonies and Adventures in Babysitting, if you know, you know on that one, and uh, Spaceballs and Ninja Turtles and Karate Kid and stuff like that. That, that was my thing. That's what I grew up with. That's what I watched with, with my dad. And my sons watch Guardians of the Galaxy and Iron Man and Spider-Man and things with uh, way, way, way better special effects, more nuanced plots. Uh, They understand something called character development now that they didn't really when I was a kid. But one of the hallmark scenes of the action movies when I was a kid, the the, the kid-appropriate-ish action movies... Uh, it went a little bit like this. The underdog in the movie, normally a kid or, or someone who's a, who's a good guy, would find themselves uh, in a fast-paced sequence face-to-face with the villain, the bad guy. Right? And in this moment, the villain would, would jump out of a corner or something, and they'd be in front of the, the weaker person, and immediately like, they, they put up their fists, and they're, and they're ready to, to fight, and the, the good guy would panic, oh no, what do I do? And you see him like look around, trying to find a way out, and they would find no way out, and that kicks in this scene that we all learn to love, where the good guy kicks the bad guy right in the parts and runs away. Every movie, this happened somewhere. It was classic. The, 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 the bad guy would kind of raise their hands, preparing for a fist fight with an eight-year-old. Well, that's weird, but they'd, they'd, they'd prepare to engage with, with their hands to, to throw and, and dodge punches. And when they're prepared for punches and they're prepared for a fist fight, that's when the, the kick just floors them. They did not expect the kick. They're so focused on one type of attack that they didn't really pay attention to the other and it easily rocks them. Why am I bringing this up? Is It's really the image or the thing that I was reminded of when studying this text. And I'll try and explain why that is by way of reminder. We've tried hard to keep the theme of Hebrews in front of you because without the theme, it's going to make no sense. Hebrews was written to a group of believers who are, who are struggling in a number of ways. Following Jesus had essentially become costly for them. You were going to be ostracized in culture for following Jesus. Uh, you were going to find opposition to, to be faithful to him in many areas of life. And some were facing actual physical persecution for their faith. In, in short, Christianity was causing them stress and pain and worry and trauma and, and real suffering in the midst of their cultural context. Now, most of the book, in light of their suffering, has repeated the message of Jesus' superiority to the original audience and to us to help them realize that even in their pain, that leaving, that, that, that heading out the back door is not a good option. Even in their sorrow, Jesus is, is still better. And now this section comes as something different that almost seems like, like an outlier, 
which begs the question, why is this outlier of discipline right here and right in this part of the text? Why does the author shower proof after proof after proof of Christ's superiority on the readers and then rope in the concept of sin and casting off sin and receiving discipline? Why does a call to endurance in faith pivot to a call to run well by casting off sin, or as Blake preached really well last week, taking off every weight that hinders you from running well? Why does it pivot this way? Why does the focus on sin jump in after there's always this encouragement just on repeat before? And the best answer is likely the the simplest answer. Because if believers are locked in on, focused on, and obsessed with looking at their suffering or their pain or their tension or their difficulty that they find themselves in front of in the moment, in that moment of laser focus on the out-of-control suffering or difficulty that they're facing, it's the prime time for them to get leveled by the sin that they're not watching out for. So focused on the pain, so focused on the situation that came that they didn't want and they want out of that sin has a perfect opportunity to to surprise them almost. Just like the villain who's looking for the punch and then gets rocked by the kick, it's easy to allow a situational worry or uncertainty or, or pain to cause us to drop our guard. In line again with the text that, that Blake preached last week, it's easy for our hardship to allow us to take our eyes off of Jesus and then begin to move the line of what's acceptable further and further and further down the road until we're in this point that running the run of faith seems difficult because we're weighed down and didn't even realize it. In the face of temptation and pain and suffering, it's going to be really tempting to pick up sin to cope with the pain that you're feeling and you desperately want out of. Which is why in the text there's a twofold exhortation. In the middle of your pain, not when it goes away, look at Jesus and consider him over and over and over again. You need to look at him. It's, it's like the baseball line we use with Judah's uh, baseball team every single week. Keep your eye on the ball. You have to fight to retain focus every single week. If you're in your faith, you have to fight to focus on Christ, to look at him, to see him, to to believe over and over in the work that he's done for you. Not to earn some extra portion of grace. You're not looking at Jesus, believing that's gonna kind of buy you credit for God to get you out of a hardship quicker than, than you would have if you didn't look at him. But the idea is this, you will be drawn to what you gaze at and when you look at Jesus in the middle of your fight, the temptation to pick up sin in the middle of your difficulty won't be as likely to to snag a hold of you. It's not a measure of performance, it's a measure of protection. Do you want to protect yourself so that you can run well in a healthy faith? One of the things I try and do is ask, is what I said really true? And if you know me, I'm a cynic, not just towards other things, but also towards myself at times. And I would invite you in this moment to to kind of critique that. Do you you believe that that's true in light of your own life, that in the middle of difficulty, it can be more tempting to pick up something that you, you shouldn't? We don't want to form all of our theological understanding off of our experiences, but I do think in this case, it is okay to ask, is that true? When you look at your life and in valley moments of tension or difficulty or pain, When you go through hard times or stress or grief, what is the MO of your heart? What is your knee-jerk reaction? What do you reach out for? What do you try and do to try and make things okay? And I'm not talking about when you just have kind of an off day. I'm talking about when life trucks you over. 
When things go the opposite of the way that you hoped they would, when things blow up in your face and it, and it hurts, what in that moment does your gaze shift to? What does your mind gravitate to almost naturally? Because I think what you and I will find is, is we'll have different things, but our lives will normally tend to go for one thing in the middle of the stress when it hits us. I found that I gravitate towards some form of escapism to cope. That's what I do. In moments of pain or hurt or worry, I, I, I turn to a hobby to make life feel fun again. Or I dive into research on some new hobby that I could pick up that would promise to, to bring me joy. Or, or maybe I lose myself in, in binging in, in YouTube rabbit trails of nonsense. Or maybe I just want to have too many glasses of bourbon one night. All of these things tempt me to escape. In my mind, if some foreseen event, unforeseen event comes in and, and takes my joy from me, here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to somehow replace that joy on my own. Well, if you take it from me, I'm going to get it back. My coping strategy is to, is to try and conjure up some way to replace what is taken. I try and regain a sense of control by believing that I will replace my grief with some measure of pleasure or joy. Unfortunately, as I've kind of done that at different times and my natural bent uh, emerges this pattern that I reach out for creation instead of the creator to soothe my, my heart when it hurts, to make life feel kind of okay again. My eyes look down instead of, uh, of looking up most naturally. While you may be tempted to, to shake your head and be like, that guy's messed up, I don't know. I would say you probably do the same, just maybe not in the same way as I do. You may be different than I am at what your eyes turn to, but, but I would put money on that your eyes probably turn to, to something. You may not turn to the same modes of coping distraction like I have, but I'm pretty sure you turn to something. Some are tempted to turn into shopping therapy. What can I buy? What can I get? What'll make me look cute and make this go away? Guys do that too, weirdly enough. Some move towards sins of desire by chasing things with their eyes and heart that they are not meant to. Some drink themselves in a hole and pretend it's not a problem. And some actually lash out on everyone they see to make themselves feel big again. We don't turn to the same thing. But there's a temptation to turn to something. The question is, are you and I self-aware enough to know what the temptation is to turn to? Have you asked the question, man, what is, what is my MO? Have you asked even people in your missional community or people that, that know the depths of who you are, what do you see me turn to? Do you know what you turn to? It's important to step back and, not, and diagnose that proclivity. It's, it's your way to, to fight the patterns of sin that, that uh, emerge in you. A question of what you turn to is probably worth a little bit of your time this week. Then in the chapter 12, what we're in right now, it's going to use the term discipline in a couple different ways, some that may surprise you. When pain comes and we're tempted to grasp a hold of something in creation, we're going to need to be, this text is going to show us, disciplined enough in a world that is absolutely drunk on gratification to say no to ourselves. We need the, the, the discipline to restrain ourselves even in the middle of grief. And, and I can't push this concept hard enough for us as a church. Our world is set up to champion all forms of gratification, 
all forms. We even have language that to restrain a gratification desire that you have or someone else has in the words of our culture, that's violence. We're set up for this. So we have to see through that and reject that uh, culturally, knowing that it's going to seem a little bit more appealing in ways that surprise us when we hurt. We have to be careful for lesser forms of gratification so that we can lean into Christ, who is ultimately better than any short-term coping mechanism you find. Keep grace in light of all this. You're not making sure that your eye is on Jesus when you suffer so that he'll still love you. It's the reality. You want to be able to see clearly even when you hurt. Now, this process of disciplining ourselves enough uh, or in the face of difficulty, it, it seems on the surface level or conceptually, it seems fairly uh, basic, but as it plays out in the life, it's anything but basic. It's quite tricky when it plays out in your real life. When, when life hands you a, a, an unfair shake or a painful season, when we begin to feel swallowed up by, by, by grief and, and difficulty, the human heart plays some tricky games that we do not expect. It can begin to say to us, well, you're going through enough stress right now. Life is hard enough right now. That sin, that pursuit, it's not that big of a deal. You can kind of clean it up later. You can worry about disciplining yourself after you get out of the pain. You deserve this one. You need a win. You've been hurting for a while. It's not a big deal. Just, just grab a hold of it. It's, it's fine. This is what our heart does. Our hearts can at times try and minimize the sin that we try and turn to. Again, Blake spoke of this last week. Have you ever noticed our hearts moving the line of acceptability further and further and further and further to where it's just like, don't murder? It's weird the things that we do and the things that we give ourselves as an allotment to turn to, not ever asking the question, is that thing helpful or not? We can justify sin is not that big of a deal when we're in pain which raises the difficulty of maintaining a, a disciplined walk for us. If culture yells, gratify your desires, you deserve it. And then your heart begins to adopt that language as, as well. Well, I'm in pain, gratify the desires, you deserve it. Then it begins pretty di- to be pretty difficult to say no or restrain ourselves. And that's why verse 4 comes in to break the tension of that moment for us. When grief comes, we can swiftly turn kind of fatalistic. Do any of you do this? Life's over. It's a small thing. And you just turn super fatalistic and lose perspective, especially... If all we do is marinate on our grief every hour of the day, the the fatalism that comes into the picture can be strong. That's why the author says, in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What's the point and who's he pointing it to? Jesus had to endure to the point of shedding blood. Most of us have have never actually had to do that to keep our faith. Some in the course of history do. Some in other places of our country or or in the world have to do that. But most of us have never actually shed blood. You're going, it's the end of the world and it's terrible and it's awful. And he goes, have you bled? No blood? I, I think you're okay. Again, in the current suffering, we can begin to make things bigger than they actually are. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt. It doesn't even mean that the pain isn't real, but our gauge of reality kind of gets a, a, a little bit warped. This is the worst thing in the world. He said, no, 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 Jesus went through the worst thing in the world for you. Can we look at him in the middle of this? When we over-elevate our struggle to be ultimate, 
and let it eclipse all things, then we begin to say things or think things. Well, you just don't know what it's like. Well, it's easy for you to say, you haven't been through that. And we can begin to say that to, to other people or, or even Christ. You don't know what it's like to, to go through this. You don't know what it's like to hurt like this. And the author says, well, Jesus does know what it's like. You can't do that to him. He has suffered to the point of shedding blood for you. So don't tell him that he cannot relate or he doesn't get it. When, when the runaway train of our grief is, is going way too fast to, to slow down the author with some form of, of a little bit of tough love, but still true, uh, true love is trying to give us perspective. Our pain is rough and it hurts and it's real, but Jesus has gone through worse and he's still there with you. Don't lose track of him. Don't turn to sin to get by. Turn to the Christ who's been through even worse and promised to never leave you. He's not minimizing your pain. He's just saying, hey, Jesus can be with you through it. Be be careful of what you turn to. Be careful of the heart that goes, you don't get it. And why did you do this to me? And and, and why? And why? Turn to him. Turn to him. Verse 5 and 6 said this, "And, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved. You get that line, getting tired of being reproved, getting tired of, of some sort of discipline. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives, he says. This verse brings about two important kind of modes or, or, or ways that, that God will form you and I. It talks about a way of general discipline and then a way of corrective reproof type discipline. And before we walk into the meanings of those two types of discipline and the nuances between them, it's probably helpful to first hear the exhortation that the author gives for our hearts. Discipline and, and correction are hard to receive and walk through. He says it, it's, it's hard to be disciplined. No one likes it in the moment. It's like, yes, I'm so psyched about this. Another wave of discipline. This is going to be wonderful. Nobody does it in the moment because you can't see the benefits until after it's done its work. But the author reminds us, even when it hurts and it's uncomfortable, discipline isn't pointless. It has a goal, an end, a telos, and the specific end cannot be overlooked because your heart is meant to find a form of peace in this. Discipline and correction are tools and ways of bringing us into what verse 11 calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I think that term and that idea is something that we could just kind of sit in for a while. The Lord wants to create in your heart something that brings you peace and righteous in the form of peaceful righteousness. We can begin to think, well, this discipline, you just want me to hurt. You're trying to steal joy from me and, and, and goodness from me. And, and what's wrong with you? And why would you do this? The Lord's discipline is an important tool to form us so that we can have this byproduct in our faith, that crop of peaceful righteousness. Again, words matter when we feel like discipline is stealing everything from us. When our hearts begin to get to the point of bitterness, and why would you, and I don't understand, and are you even good? Why, why would you do this? When we feel like pain is taking everything from us, and it means nothing, We begin to feel that God is mean for causing or keeping us in pain. The author says the pain of the discipline of God will bring about good. Though all you see is chaos and worry, 
It's building a heart that can produce a steady crop of peace and peaceful righteousness. You may not be able to see the forest through the trees when you have tears in your eyes, but it doesn't mean that God isn't doing something beautiful and good even in the middle of your pain. We want to split it. If I'm in pain, nothing good can happen there. And the author's going, even in the middle of your pain, God will do something good. It's the promise that your pain leads somewhere. Receiving God's discipline brings about an amazing good in the heart. It creates a fruit that cannot be stolen or destroyed. We need to kind of step back again and see the, um, the arc, the storyline of the Bible and begin to see again, what is God doing and what is his hope and what is his promise and what is his plan? This life isn't just some incubator and then after the incubation period, you get whatever your idea of heaven is. That's not what happens. You're being prepared and formed into the image of the Son. You're being sanctified, prepared to where you can live in glory. And part of this discipline is the preparing of your heart to live in glory eternally with the Father. You're not just meant to have unending smiles and be done. He's preparing you. There can still be a part of our heart that goes, but I don't like that. I get that. But the Lord is doing something better than we can see at times. Then the author reminds us, don't hate or go tired of God's discipline. They're going to be a part of us. You get like one wave of discipline. You're like, okay, I kind of see the point. Then a second and a third. You're like, seriously, more? I don't think that guy's got discipline at all. Look at him. Like discipline that guy, him, get that guy. You get tired of it and it hurts. He says, don't grow tired. Why? Because the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. See the tricky part of the heart? When the Lord disciplines you, you think he doesn't love me. He hates me. And the author goes, no, no, you get it wrong. When he disciplines you, it shows his love for you. He chastises every son that he receives. Again, it's easy to believe that God's discipline is his contempt. To think, God, if you love me, you wouldn't do this to me. You would not let, you would not let me hurt like this. You would, not, you would not let me go through this again. You would not let this happen if you cared for me. If you were really powerful, if you really cared for me, you would not let me feel this type of grief. Remember, the original audience, they're getting persecuted, and this is how they're feeling. God, if you love me, why are you letting me go through this? He goes, because I love you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to form you in it. The author pulls from Proverbs 3 to give us clarity. This is Solomon speaking to his own son, Showing the heart of the Father. God's discipline isn't a sign of his hate, it's a sign of his love. God's correction isn't a sign that he doesn't care, it's a sign that he does. The discipline of the Lord is a reminder and proof that he's still there and still working. God's discipline is the treating of his children like sons. And and this is deep. He says, what son is there in whom the Father doesn't actually discipline them? And if a son receives no discipline, it's a sign that he's illegitimate. Can you connect the words that he's trying to say there? You know the word for illegitimate son, right? Spiritually, that's you if God doesn't care who you are. But he does, he's forming you, and that's his love towards you. The text is reminding us a little bit about the point of parenting biblically which we all probably need a little bit of a refresher course. And to parent is to do more than put a roof over someone's head. It's to form a child into a responsible, God-fearing adult. It's to train them to go from a, a selfish taker 
to one who will sacrifice and is capable and responsible while still instilling values in them. Parenting is the act of molding children. Teaching them to fear the Lord and understanding that that rules and parameters are good. This is what parenting is. Much of our world, again, is saying that this is not good and it's not loving. And if you're trying to do that to your kids, you're abusive. That's not what the Bible says. It says you mold them. They come out weird and wicked. You've ever seen a two-year-old punch another one over a toy? Wicked. It's our job to, right? A little hyperbole, but we see it. It's our job to form them. The author is saying if there's a parent who takes no care in molding a child... They give no discipline, no direction, no correction or intentional developing, then it's proof that that parent doesn't care or really love the child. So when God takes on molding or disciplining one of us, we need to see, as as hard as it is, that is the tangible evidence that he is good and cares. What's What's the inverse of that? we should probably be pretty scared if he takes no interest and and doesn't mold anything in us. Not angry when he's interested in molding. We should be pretty scared if he's left us alone forever because you're going, he he forms his sons and I don't know the last way he's molded me. I've just kind of done my my thing for a while and he's just kind of been okay with it. That should be the more worrisome thing. Our father cares about his children and who they're becoming. He's going to take a more active role in his children's life in molding them since he is the potter and we are the clay, right? These little things in the Bible that we thought were just all metaphorical and then you're like, oh wait, that was serious. He's molding us. Again, we're being prepared for glory. Now the two ways that God is forming his children that are mentioned in the text can, can be thought of as, as general discipline, again, and corrective discipline. And it will be helpful to understand discipline isn't always punitive. We see discipline in uh, only these forms of, of punishment, meaning it, it, it is a, a penalty given or a sentence handed down to discipline someone is to train them. It's to educate them. It's to help form them. It's, it's not the process of, of only like destroying someone. It's helping train them so they can become something. What the author is trying to show the original audience and us is that the current opposition that, that the original audience was, was facing, the persecution and the pain, the hurt that they so badly wanted free from that they're thinking of abandoning Christ and the, the, the faith that the Lord is going to use that to discipline them and train them. Think of the Old Testament story of Joseph when he is reunited with his brothers way later in a story. These are the same brothers that, that sold him. They got mad because he got a cool coat And then they sold their brother into slavery and went back home and told their dad that he died. This led into slavery. Joseph was placed in prison several times, had a horribly difficult life. These same brothers, when he comes back face to face with them, he says this line to them. And and, and I think we don't think about what it means or we almost make it like a coffee cup type verse to where we're like, don't ever think of the reality there or we think it's a dig. He says to his brothers, what you meant to hurt me, God meant for my good. What he was communicating was God disciplined him, trained him, molded him, formed him through the pain. 
Keep in tension these. The actions the brothers took against Joseph were wicked, awful, sinful, and disturbing actions. And yet God used those horrific actions to mold Joseph for his good. Again, Joseph wasn't sold into slavery as a punitive punishment from God. Yet God used the evil brought against him to discipline him for his good. See, we can loathe our circumstance so much that we forget that God can still use it. The author is reminding the original audience and us if we are suffering right now. If our faithfulness has led us into pain and we're tempted to get angry and frustrated and and bitter to remember that God can still use it because he's a good father. In fact, God will use even the pain that you're in precisely because he is a good father. You can just step back and we can often ask, did God do this? Or that may not be the right question. The, The better question is, can God use this? Is he good enough to use even the the things that you soaked your pillow in tears over to bring about good. The challenging thing that I've had to face over the last year is like one of the most painful things that happened to me did probably one of the best works inside of me. I hate that. I can't stand here and be like, so I'm so excited that it happened. I'm not. I wish there was another way. I don't say it flippantly or, or in a cavalier mode. I can see the usefulness of what he has done. I, I, can't, I can't really use the, the, the full grateful word yet because it hurt too much. But God used some of the worst pain that I have faced to do something profoundly good. Evil towards me and tear-filled grief led to a forming of my heart that nothing else would have formed it in that way. There's a calm empathy and trusting in God that, that stands now that probably wasn't there at the same level before. God uses fire to refine. Look at the biblical language of, of sanctification. You understand that that's like a, a smelting process of burning off dross where you take a metal and you heat it up to flaming hot and you rip coals over it to take the impurities out. You're like, oh, I thought that was metaphorical. He, he does that. Oh, okay. It can be difficult, but in pain, he does some of his best work. What are we supposed to do with that though? Learn to love pain, be gluttons for punishment. Here we go again, suffering for discipline. I, I don't know if that's it. And, and I also don't know that we get to the point where we try and figure out like, well, I got to learn the lesson of exactly what he's trying to do faster and then he'll get me out of this faster. I don't, I don't think that's a, a good thing either. And you don't learn to perma smile or, or, or grin and say, this is amazing. But it does tr- teach us to trust him even when we don't understand why. I believe that you're doing something good even when I don't know what it is now. I don't like it. I want out of it. Com- complete your work, though. I trust that you're not going to let this be wasted. 
knowing that he can use even the worst things to bring about good is what happens in the heart as it tends to, to mature through pain. Even though it's like, I, I would really rather mature in a different way. Our Abba is so good and powerful that he can do beautiful things from horrible things. How frustrating must that be to the enemy though? Look, I got them exactly where I want them. They're hurting and they're gonna turn on God and then they hold to God and he refines them even more on the other side. We serve a God who turns the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He turns dirt into humans. We just, we, we just sang it. He, it is the business of God to, to make graves into gardens. He does amazing things out of things that you never thought possible. He can also take what feels awful and make it do good. He can train us even through circumstances that we wish that we did not face. The question becomes, will we trust him when we suffer though? Like that's the functional question over a lot of this. Will you cast off your sin that, that, that holds you back and in the middle of the things that you really can't stand that happen to you, will you still trust him or will you angrily shake a fist at him and say, I hate you, why'd you do this? The other side of the discipline paradigm is the corrective reproof side of things. The shepherd will use the staff to guide us gently at times. And then if you're hard-headed like me, he'll turn it around and smack you on the head with it sometimes too. It goes back to the language, I think, of fathering and shepherding here. The good father will lay out rules and boundaries and parameters for you, and he'll remind them uh, to us when we miss the mark, and he'll also lower down some forms of punishment for our good when we're running out of control like children in temper tantrums. I remember clear as day a time that I got disciplined by my father. I was... I think 11 and it was a weekend and I really wanted to go ride my bike with some friends to an event that was funny enough happened to a a church in like a neighborhood over and and we were at that age where we could kind of go blocks away and it was going to be an adventure even though it was just like a couple blocks but we were going to go I was excited about it and then I was told that I couldn't go because I didn't have my my room clean enough at the time that I wanted to leave so my dad wouldn't let me ride bikes with my friends I was furious. He was a jerk, unfair, unreasonable. And so I went to my room and in a fit of anger, I threw clothes into the laundry basket with quite some vigor, muttering things that should not be muttered as I did in this pity party tantrum of rage. Then as I threw one last thing, I turned around and saw my dad in the doorway of my room. I was too irate to notice that he had opened the door and was watching, and I immediately go, this is the day I die. (laughs) He's going to snatch my life. He didn't. Pretty sure I got grounded a lot longer than a day, though. But what I recall in that story is not just that I, I thought that I was going to die. I couldn't see anything as far as teaching or formation that day. I just saw meanness. I just saw there's something that that I want to do, and it's ridiculous that you won't let me do it. All I saw was red. I didn't see formation. I felt that they were unfair and mean for no reason. My 11-year-old mind couldn't contemplate why making me do the things that I should do was so important. Even as we grow older, I think that we can slip into that with God. We don't see his correction as kindness sometimes or as our formation for our good. We don't realize that him saying no or him punishing us may be good. 
The author is reminding us, even when we don't like it, God's active hand, active reproof is an act of love. Receive his discipline, don't stiffen your neck. Again, he goes back, nobody likes to be punished in the moment. Everybody's, how unfair. Understand that he loves you and he cares for you, even when he brings about things that you don't like. There's two forms of correction, the, the training through pain that comes, and then there's a little more hands-on of like, I'm going to stop you from that. Trust him. Why? Again, because he's good. He's proved that he's good. What the Bible tells us? He's sent his son to shed his blood. He, he's proved that he cares for you. The correction feels not great in the moment. It leads to something wonderful, the peace and righteousness of Christ. And it prepares us for glory and it prepares us for eternity. I'll kind of wind down today's message. I originally thought that we would do like the next five verses too and just, there was just no way to, to kind of fit it in. So the, Blake, the verse that Blake did last week and this verse will kind of culminate together into a, a finishing of this idea in the text next week. But we should remember the water that we swim in. We, we live in a world that's out of control right now. And that's not like in a political opinion. Just look out. You can't look out and be like, everything's awesome. The one that has gone off the, rege- the rails and believes in rejecting all correction and all discipline. One that has elevated freedom to mean n- no rules, essentially. An autonomy to to equal the ability to do whatever you want without any question or out anyone who causes you to pause. If we are followers of Christ, that worldview is to be rejected personally, thoroughly. Does that mean that you scream at everyone for their view? I'm not telling you to do that. You just don't pick it up. Our picture of perfection isn't a life without restraint or correction. Our picture of heaven is a reconciled relationship with the Father where the fallout of a broken creation is is fully healed by Jesus, where we are freed completely and finally from, from slavery to sin and finding our meaning and pleasure. Even in moments of pain, we're called to remember we're gonna feel like aliens and sojourners here because we live in a different way than other people do. Do not chase the, the, the way of the culture that believes that any type of correction is evil. And we, and we see this, not just in, in our church. If you just look back and have friends and you look around, how many people jump from place to place to place? Because even in, in church, people won't, from the church family, they won't even receive correction. It's the, the followers of Jesus adopting the ways of the culture. We have to be careful about hearts that, that, that shirk any form of correction. There'd be just two simple questions. They're not... They're not meant to be deep. Just hopefully we'll contemplate those in worship as we close down for today and maybe over the week. And the first simplistic one, and you can see it coming, is is there something that God has been trying to correct you from and you've just been ignoring it? Has he been trying to discipline you in some sort of reproof or correction way over the last little bit? As Blake put it last week, are, is there a weight that you've, been, you've started to become comfortable carrying that the Holy Spirit has been asking you for quite some time to put down? And you've just ignored it or refused it or, or, or believe that that wasn't really God asking you to do that. And 
I think that if that's the case, you know it right now. And the most shepherding thing that I could do is just say, hey, as we wind down and we sing and we get ready to come to the, to the table and celebrate the goodness of what God has done, would you, would you set that thing down first and confess it in prayer and receive the discipline of the Lord saying, I've got something better, will you walk away from that? The correction the Father has been trying to give you is his love, not his punishment. And I, I don't want to skim past that. Some of us may be in seasons of rejection where you have run past the Holy Spirit's calls to put something down for so long that, that you don't even feel him calling you to do it anymore. That's not a sign that he doesn't care anymore. It's a sign that he's been grieved. If that's you, if you've been ignoring the Spirit's work in, in, the, in the, tri, the, the try of the Spirit to, to, to train you by, by asking you to let go of some weight that you've picked up, would you repent of that? Would you turn from it and believe that he's better than whatever you've been picking up? Would you know that God isn't trying to hurt you? I firmly believe that so many times we get so far down the rabbit hole of, of sin or distraction that we begin to not be enamored with God because our sin won't let us look at him anymore. And the Holy Spirit is just saying, hey, put that down. I've got something better for you. Will you come? Come and look at Jesus once again and see what he has done. And the second, the first is more on the corrective side. The second is about acknowledgement and worship and testimony. Is there work that you can now see that God has done in your previous pain that you need to call out and thank him for? I just, I just gotta say, it's really hard in the middle of the pain to be thankful for the pain. Like maybe we can get there, but, but maybe you see out of a season that he's brought you out of, you did something profoundly good. It's important to maybe diagnose that and tell him, Man, I didn't enjoy the grief, but I see what you're doing and I trust you. I thank you that you care. The correction of the God who loves us is a part of running the race well. We should see his correction as his kindness. We must trust him that he is good. And it's important not just to see what, what he's calling out, but to also see the work that he's done and thank him for it. And then begin to share that with our brothers and sisters around us. Man, there's this hard season. I begin to see that God did this in me and there's probably not another way for him to have done it and it hurt. And it was, man, I did not like it, but he did something good. And I'm thankful that he did that. And then, and then begin to share that. And the word of our testimony then builds up our other brothers and sisters when they're suffering to trust him even maybe they're suffering now. And, and they need to, to see that he is still good even in the middle of the pain. So much of Hebrews has been encouragement and proclamation. Band, you guys can come back up. That Jesus is better than everything. That God sent him to do what we could not do. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. He came and lived the perfection that we couldn't lay down his life so that we could be redeemed and place our faith in him, which means we actually obey and follow him. And now the spirit is with us to form us into the likeness of Christ. The hope is that we would back up enough to see and realize what he was doing. We would thank him for that, and we would, we, we would be eager participants. Lord, when you correct me, I will receive it. And when you've done good work in me, I will acknowledge it. That is our hope, that we will continue to be formed into the likeness of Christ and thankful that he has done a good work. We're going to come to the table. What we'll do is we'll play a couple songs, and at any point you can come and, and take But as you do, whether you're in a season of pain or 
Maybe in a season, your, your, your heart is being stirred and beautiful things are happening. No matter which season you're in, you come to the table and thank the Lord, you've, you, your broken body and your blood was shed for me. In the seasons that I hurt and I don't understand, in the seasons where I feel close and, and my heart is just churned for you, in all of those seasons, the sacrifice still remains. We want to continue and be built up by that every week. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord... Why I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as we close, we want to acknowledge the work that God is doing and thank him for the work that he's already finished. The beautiful proclamation, even in the middle of God still working, is it's finished. All the things that we need were supplied in the cross in Christ. So we come to the table as work still in progress, thanking him for what he's done and asking him to continue working. You don't have to be a member here to take. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. We'll sing some songs and then you come to the table at any time that you want. But would you wrestle with the questions if God has been asking you to let go of something or wrestle with the reality if he's done a good work and you just haven't been paying attention to it yet. Would you stand and worship with me today?